0: Hey Outliers, welcome to another episode of Outlier Academy, a show about the misfits, rebels, and idealists shaping our world, and the ideas, influences, and lessons that propelled them to the top of their craft. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, we explore how the ways that consumers are spending their time and money are changing, and why they're changing, with Dan Fromer of The New Consumer. Dan launched The New Consumer, which is a premium newsletter in 2019, after more than a decade of writing for Forbes, Business Insider, Quartz, and Recode. Growing up, Dan's dad ran an advertising agency, giving him a fascinating early window into why consumers spend their time and money. I've been a subscriber to the new consumer since it launched, and it remains one of my favorite newsletters. Dan covers new brands that are making waves, like Fishwife and Omson, as well as established players like Sweetgreen to give readers a broad sense of how the consumer landscape and the players in it are changing. And in this episode, we cover a ton of ground, including how Dan thinks about the new consumer, what they care about, and how they make purchasing decisions. What the best modern brands get right, including the how and why behind their success. What technology unlocks for modern brands and how they're building it into every aspect of what they're building. Dan's advice for founders and teams building a modern brand from the ground up. And the surprising data in Dan's latest trend report, which he publishes once a year, including how the behaviors consumers adopted during the pandemic are sticking. You can download the latest trend report titled The Partial Reopening Special at www.newconsumer.com trends. There you can also become a member and subscribe to The New Consumer. I highly recommend it. You can also follow Outlier Academy on Twitter for exclusive clips, quotes, and more at Outlier Academy. And you can find our show notes with links to everything that we discuss, as well as a full transcript of this conversation at outlieracademy.com 40. With that, let's jump in with Dan Fromer. Dan, welcome to Outlier Academy, and thank you so much for your time. I'm really excited to chat with you today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So just a little bit of background for people listening. I think I signed up for your newsletter close to when you launched it. I think I've been subscribing for two years. And some of the things that I love about it is you just write about something that is niche, but also meta in a lot of ways, which is the modern consumer, how people are spending their time and their money. And you've got some fascinating observations. So to start, I thought just to lay some foundation for people that might not be familiar, can you just give kind of a quick sketch of your background? And then we'll talk about some of the origin story of the new consumer.
1: Absolutely. Again, thanks for having me on. I was a 90s internet kid. I started building websites in middle school in the mid 90s, both for myself and for my father's ad agency clients. So I had an early start in crafting brands on the internet and building websites and publishing digitally. And then I went to college to study journalism. I went to the Medill Journalism School at Northwestern and studied to be a TV reporter, actually really wanted actually to go into radio and public radio news, but ended up moving to New York a year after I graduated and basically applied for every job in media and started my career as a digital journalist. So since then, and that was almost 16 years ago, I've spent my time both acting as a professional business and technology journalist, but also as an internet entrepreneur, starting new media brands, started my career at Forbes, which is kind of as big and as old as it gets in terms of business media, and then immediately helped start Business Insider, which was As new and as different as you could get in business media. So I've gotten to do a bunch of those new brands from scratch, including some of my own. And I've also had the opportunity to work at some more established media companies like The Atlantic when I worked at Quartz or Vox Media, which was my last kind of staff job when I was running a tech site called Recode.
0: Yeah, it's incredible. You've been at all of the kind of iconic names, which is is interesting, or many of the iconic names. I'd love to talk a little bit about just the origin story of the new consumer. And I think what I'd love to explore there is what was so important to you about exploring this topic in this space? And then was there any sort of element to it that was timing related where you were like, okay, I've got to start this now?
1: There's two parts to it. One is that I've always been really interested in independent publishing as a solo publisher. And I actually started a site in 2011 as a solo publisher called Splat F, and it was about basically the world of Apple and for a business and an investor audience. That's where I started making some of my famous charts. But back then, my business model was advertising, and it just isn't a great business model for niche media. You really need, or at least it wasn't back then, and it probably still isn't now, unless you really are hands-on selling sponsorships by yourself, which I didn't want to do. But the other part of it was that I had spent more than a decade, watching technology and covering technology. And to me, the most interesting thing about technology isn't the big tech companies themselves, but the effect that technology has on the world. As I say, it's a layer on life. It's not just an industry. It's just part of everything now. Every company has to be a tech company. Every product, to some degree, is influenced by technology. And my personal interest is food, grocery, consumer packaged goods, Like I said, I grew up in an ad household. One of my dad's clients was Gatorade. I got really into Gatorade when I was a kid. And if I ever have two hours to kill, you're gonna find me at a grocery store somewhere in the world, you know, just like looking at every single package and really trying to understand what's unique about the market. So five, 10 years ago, I started noticing these brands that seemed really new and interesting. I was living in New York. And there was a new brand called Warby Parker, which was really taking a fresh look at the eyeglasses industry and competing not only on price, but also on style. There was a company called Harry's, which was doing a similar thing for men's grooming. And then there was a luggage company called Away and a makeup company called Glossier. And these brands were really interesting to me, not just because their products really felt fresh and exciting for a younger consumer, but also because of the way they were building their company and their brand. And they were using technology to do it in a way that most big companies and small companies weren't doing before. That's not to say these are tech companies. I think that's a misunderstood thing and perhaps some misallocation of investor resources over that time. But they were digitally enabled in a way, whether it's building a community or doing marketing or customer service, or even just simple e-commerce, like the e-commerce experience for these companies was just far and away better and different than it was for a traditional brand. So I was really interested in these brands at Recode. We were covering them a little bit, but at some point I said, Hey, you know what? You want to do your own thing again. There's this subscription business model that is new and compelling for independent publishers Substack, I think, had just launched. Memberful, which is this tool I use, had been going for a while. I must always mention Ben Thompson and Stratechery, which was the pioneer of this model and someone who I had really respected and admired and said, you know what, why don't I take all these things and try to do something with them? Let's try to make a publication about the new consumer, which is the person who's buying and shopping at these brands, but also the innovation in the business themselves. Let's write the stories that I want to read because I sure wasn't reading them anywhere else. And let's do some deep dives into this topic in a way that only I can do. And that's what compelled me to start the new consumer. Launched it in March of 2019, so about two and a half years ago, and thankfully been going strong since then.
0: You made some really interesting points there, and I'd love to go a little bit deeper on one of those. And that's that technology is an overlay. And I think similar to you, I think I really started noticing Really interesting novel and just the volume of direct to consumer brands that were coming out, but also food brands, whether that's house, whether that's some of the brands we're going to talk about later today, like sweet green or. Omsom or Fishwife, but it just seems like we're in the golden age. And I remember just as a little bit of a parallel to something you talked about of that these aren't technology brands, but they're enabled by technology. I remember maybe three years ago being at an investor conference and someone, and this was right when Starbucks had really started to get some traction with their app and really started to see some stickiness of people using that to order ahead. And I remember someone on stage was trying to make the point that Starbucks was now a technology brand. And I remember being like, well, that's not true. Their unit economics are not technology brand unit economics. The question I want to ask is, what does technology unlock for these brands? Does it unlock a better business model? Does it unlock a better connection with consumers? Is it faster to scale? Just any observations there?
1: I mean, all of those things, plus so many more. Someone told me this idea once that if you remember the early days of GPS chips and cell phones, everyone thought, okay, well, what's the application of location-based services going to be? okay, well, maybe you'll walk by a Starbucks and, oh, you'll just get an ad for that Starbucks as you walk by, like 25% off or something like that. By the way, some people tried to build that. It hasn't really worked. No one had the idea that if you have a GPS chip in everybody's pocket, you could create a service like Uber, where all of a sudden people could, through software that was very easy to install, free to install, in fact, and on this computer that everybody has in their pocket that knows where they are, could build a global fleet of amateur taxis. People weren't thinking like that. And that's just a systems and a network concept that technology really enables. It also does so much more. There's a great company called Lumi based here in Los Angeles that just makes it really easy for e-commerce businesses to get really great packaging. That's a process that used to take a fax machine and a lot of connections and a lot of word of mouth. And now because there's the internet, there's websites, there's e-commerce, and there's this amazing systems integrator, all of a sudden you can do things just so much more easily and quickly than you can before. Even just like finding industrial designers or other specialists, there's just so much more consumer choice now and so much more products because technology allows those products to reach bigger audiences more quickly. Everything from like customer service to digital payments are so easy to do now. They were so hard to do even a decade ago. So it's not that every company has to create a new technology in order to be technology enabled, but basically every business, especially we learned this over the last year and a half with the pandemic, every business should be technology enabled to some degree, and it unlocks just so many different opportunities. And whether it's growth speed or breadth of growth, or just a deeper connection with your customer, All these things are possible because of technology.
0: Yeah. Just listening to you say that, it sounds like it's almost like that now technology is table stakes. People expect it to be threaded at all layers of their interaction with a company. And so, yeah, I guess that is the big change. It needs to be embedded deeply.
1: Totally. And it seems obvious, but it should. It is obvious and it's huge.
0: So I'd love to use this as a little bit of a jumping off point to explore a few things really in depth. And the first one is... I would love to talk a little bit about and paint a picture of the modern consumer, because I think that everyone's aware of the takes of kind of Gen Z that are maybe harsh of what they're like, what they don't like. I feel like you can paint a more nuanced picture. And we were talking before you were talking about that what you're really doing is you study supply and demand and how people are spending their time and their money. So I thought just to start, can you paint a vignette or a profile of the modern consumer, or at least help us flesh out that picture a little bit more?
1: That would be a beautiful thing. The truth is that there's just so many people that everybody is different and it really just becomes society. However, there are some things that I think the modern consumer is more comfortable with technology, is more comfortable with e-commerce, is more comfortable with digital tools and services, more comfortable trying new things, I think. There used to be this idea that the oldest brand was the most trustworthy because they've existed for this long, so their product must work, it must be good, but... To me, that doesn't really fly anymore because, to me, technology and science, you know, developments in science and tech, to me, say like the company that has been formed most recently should actually be the one using the newest and best stuff. So, and I think consumers are much more interested and willing to trust new brands than they ever were before. Trust is kind of a tough topic these days because trust in institutions, in government, in the media is basically at an all time low. And so it's hard to. Talk about trust as anything but a problem area right now, but I do see people trusting new brands and being excited about being a pioneer almost or an early adopter. I think products like the iPhone and even the iPod before it and the Mac, Apple products specifically made people excited to be early adopters of technology. it's kind of bragging rights. I definitely was definitely the kid on the L in Chicago in high school who was very happy to have a mini disc player and a Nokia candy bar phone and i think there is definitely an element of discovery now that people are excited about instagram i think has been a big part of that people not only want to be first to a product but want to show it to all their friends and it really opens an entire ecosystem i do a project and we'll probably talk more about this in depth i do a project called consumer trends which is a research driven report with a venture capital firm here actually, I'm no longer in New York, but they're in New York called Coefficient Capital. And one of the things we saw in one of our previous reports is basically younger generations use more brands of products than older generations, specifically in beauty. They use a lot more beauty brands than older generations because this new economy means that you can specialize in something really, really niche. You can specialize in a certain condition, a certain skin condition, or for a certain population. And e-commerce in the internet mean that you can target and reach that small community in a way you could never do before. The old days, it was all about, can I get the deal for Walmart or Target and be the preferred brand on display there? That's still important. That's still a big part of later mid to late stage growth for consumer packaged goods brands. But today it's all about how can I find my tribe of hundreds and then maybe thousands of people who will really be interested in this specific unique product that I have And we'll talk about it. We'll build a community about it. We'll build a following and an audience and almost sell it for us. And that's really kind of the strategy that a lot of modern brands take these days.
0: I would love to ask, and I may be, this is a shot in the dark, so there may not be anything really here, but I'd love to ask almost the inverse question, which is, what do you think is most misunderstood or that most, and this could be legacy brands, legacy brands trying to appeal to the modern consumer, just totally misunderstand and get wrong. But do you see any major misconceptions that are just totally not true that are leading people in a wrong direction?
1: I struggle with questions like that because there's just so much nuance into everything. I would say that... Big brands are trying to do this sort of thing and they're trying to appeal to younger consumers and they're trying to make more niche products but the execution is almost always poor every time i see a big brand come out with something whether it's like a scent or a flavor that is trying to mimic the cool scent or flavor that a really niche brand has made It's almost always just not good. It's like just a bad approximation of what makes something interesting and special. So what is misunderstood? I would say probably a lot, but I probably don't have a pleasing answer to that question.
0: Well, no, but I think you hit on something really interesting, which is this idea that obviously brands are aware of the new brands that are entering the space. They know that these are disrupting their industry and may not be disrupting them, but it's starting to break in and are mimicking, basically trying to copy and obviously getting the broad brushstrokes right, but getting all the details totally wrong. And maybe one note there is around authenticity. And I know that that's something we're going to talk about later, but is there anything around, just do you have any insights, any points of view about why authenticity is so important today for modern brands?
1: I think people see through phony BS in a way that before, again, some of this is just broad trust in institutions. Like you grew up seeing tv commercials and going oh wow these brands of course they're correct you know of course they're right of course they know what's best and then you realize no they don't they don't actually know anything and now you just have so much more exposure to the people who actually are making things because they really are passionate about it and want to find the best possible thing i think of these really niche olive oil brands like there's a brand in the east bay called fat gold and it's just these two people who just really want to make the best olive oil imaginable. And I just can't go back to buying the mass brand crap at the store anymore because I've now been ruined by this really excellent olive oil. They're not the only ones, by the way. There's Brightland, there's several other really niche olive oil brands at a spice company called Diaspora Co., which a young energetic founder who just wants to find the best Indian spices and bring them to the American consumer. And once you've had the turmeric from Diaspora Co., you can never buy Whole Foods 365 turmeric ever again. It's just not going to work. So authenticity is a word that is often misused and used in a way that is designed to make people angry more than anything else, I think. But to some degree, it is a real thing. You can really tell when someone is super passionate about something When they're doing it because they really want to make a great product and you can take a more skeptical look at not all big companies are like this but a lot of times you can really tell their motivation is a lot different than that independent entrepreneur and again e-commerce and technology is what allows those brands to thrive now in a way that they just couldn't do before perhaps they could get into a couple stores in their town and then grow organically from there and organic growth is really still the ideal growth in food, beverage, consumer, all those industries. But e-commerce just opens up so many opportunities and allows, authentic, let's make a buzzword here, authenticity at scale is now so much more popular and possible now than it was five, 10 years ago.
0: I love that term. We're definitely going to add that in the show notes and I'll try to yeah. lay claim to that. Um, <laughs> let's I,
1: register I, that trademark. Yeah, right now. there
0: we go. I'll do that right after this. Your point earlier of around Well, you know, all the things that legacy brands get wrong... It's been kind of rolling around in my mind since you say that. And the one, I don't think it's a counterfactual, but the one, I guess, thing that stands out is Target seems to have been surprisingly successful at almost stealing some of the DNA of some of the modern brands, releasing that as private labels. And there's some things that are unique there. Those obviously aren't, I don't think you can get those on Amazon. You can't, those things don't have a direct website. They're not direct to consumer. So it's basically maybe Target taking shelf space from some of these competitors and offering an alternative. Any insights there on like, why have they been able to be successful or what's unique about that?
1: Well, first I have to ask you, have you hacked into my computer? Or are you looking at my story ideas list? Because <laughs> no. that's something I'm also very impressed with and really curious about. And so one thing I'll point out there is Target historically was not a brand creator, they were a retailer and they were historically selling other people's brands, Procter & Gamble's brands, Unilever's brands. And private labels been a part of retail for decades. It's Nothing new, but usually private label was the cheapest stuff. It was kind of crappy. It was basically there to make you pay more for the better brand unless you really couldn't. I think back to the generic grocery brands growing up where it was basically a white label with black words that just said beer on it or whatever, or beans or something like that. Private label has really come so far since then. And it's interesting to see retailers like Target, which again, in the past were not in the business of creating great brands, but really just selling other people's stuff, creating these new brands that are interesting, that have a point of view, that have high quality, differentiated products, and have kind of a fun brand sense to them. That's new. That's really interesting. By the way, most retailers are not Target. In fact, you look at pretty much every other retailer in grocery Their private label brands don't work like that. There are some, though, I think Monoprix in France does a really good job with this. They have some pretty high quality private label stuff. When I'm in Paris, I'm buying a lot of Monoprix brand things and Target does a great job with it. I think Amazon actually does a poorer job with it. People are always really interested in all these Amazon private label brands, but ultimately I find them to be kind of not that great. I would say Whole Foods actually has done a really fantastic job with it. And of course, Trader Joe's too, which is basically all private label and continues to punch way above its weight in terms of interesting new products, unique products that you can only buy there and really sits as an example of what's possible with private label. There are some attempts from internet brands to do this. Thrive Market is one that comes to mind. Some of them do better than others, but Target, you're right. They've got something special going on there and that's Definitely something I hope to investigate further. So maybe we'll have a newsletter about that in the next couple of months.
0: Yeah, I'd be excited to read it. My take, just quickly, is they've taken a very different approach to execution. I think, you know, I know a few people that have worked on some of the design elements for some of those private brands. And they really, I mean, in terms of the process that they follow, to invent these things and figure out what that point of view is and figure out what that brand identity is. They do best in class in terms of what kind of modern, really successful direct-to-consumer brands are doing. So yeah, I'd be curious to see what you uncover. There's a
1: couple of things though that they have now that they always could have had, but technology has enabled recently, which is really strong data on their consumer and first-party data, which is important. They know exactly what everybody buys in their stores. They also have control over the execution, as you say, like they can do everything from the product buy to the brand design, to the store merchandising and display, and they don't need anyone else's permission. They don't need Costco to bless them with an end cap or anything like that, or any complication like that. They can do it all themselves. And I'd love to see other retailers figure that out too. It really is something that Target is doing in a special way right now.
0: Yeah, I think the merchandising element's really interesting because as soon as you tee up all of those different things, it makes it pretty clear that they have quite an unfair advantage just because it's obviously their store. They control the display. They can take shelf space from other brands. So I'd love to pivot and explore other modern brands. And we were prepping for this. You were talking about that a lot of people are basically fixated on what modern brands are doing. And this kind of goes back to our point earlier of maybe legacy brands are trying to mimic just in terms of the execution or the final look and feel or what's on the surface of these brands. But what's interesting to you is how and why the most interesting companies are doing what they're doing. So I'd love to start there and just talk a little bit about if there are any learnings and takeaways of what these modern brands are getting right in terms of how and why.
1: To me the most exciting ones again are the ones that have a reason to exist and are also just executing in a way that is very high quality but also is newly possible because of technology, social media, the internet. An example that I really like recently is called Fishwife. It's a tinned fish startup here in Los Angeles started by two young women who did not have a background in fishing in tanning (laughs) cannons, even in sales. But they were able to kind of have this epiphany about a year ago, if I recall. They were like, hey, we like sardines. How come there's no really good sardine brand that's either from the US or really high quality or just really speaks to us? And this idea of speaking to us, I think is really important these days because the connection that consumers have with brands is deep and also is kind of ongoing, is constant. If you are A daily instagram user which hundreds of millions of people are maybe it's a billion you're coming in contact with these brands every day and they become a part of your life in a way that they weren't before they're storytellers they're publishers they're world builders and if you look at fishwife first of all these two women were able to source smoked salmon smoked trout sardines with no background They just were able to source it. And some of that is through old school word of mouth, cold calling, walking up to people, taking trips, but some of it is possible because of the internet and certainly reaching their customer base is possible from the internet. They were able to build a really interesting brand with very organic and analog drawings basically as their brand and their voice. And it really reflects them too. I've had a chance to chat with them and meet them in person and it's really them and That just was really hard to do before. Like you could do that again on a small scale. You could start a brand and sell it in a couple of local stores or something like that, if you were lucky, but the fact that they've been able to build a clientele across the U S and get featured in a ton of newspapers and websites and newsletters and magazines. And now you're starting to see it in more stores here in LA, especially it's really cool. And to me, it's just a really great example of something that you can create in weeks or months and. I won't say that they've scaled it. I mean, I'm sure their volumes are higher now than they were a year ago before they were selling stuff, but they can scale it and they can start it from scratch in a way that is really interesting and unique. And not to say there's a blueprint that everyone should follow, but it's a great example of what's possible now. There's another one called Sam, which was two sisters in New York, Vanessa and Kim Pham, who grew up in a Vietnamese American household. They started this sauce company called AmSam because it's actually really hard to find really high quality Asian sauces. You know, that the stuff in the food aisle, and actually there's a really great story in the New York Times recently about how the ethnic food aisle still lives on despite the fact that it's just a flawed concept. The sauces you could buy in the ethnic food aisle are nowhere near as good as the ones that AmSam was able to create. Again, with no real background in food or consumer packaged goods, or branding or anything that they've been able to put together a really compelling brand that has great visuals, a really, really terrific product that reflects this commitment to really obsessively finding the best products. They also have an interesting model where they work with chefs to develop the recipes. They source really, really hard to find stuff. I believe there was yuzu was something, or there was some sort of citrus that They were able to get into a a shelf-stable packet that's just really hard to do, that just makes it taste like 10 times better than any sauce you've ever had from a jar or packet. So, and have this fun brand and they have a great newsletter that comes out and they're living the brand essentially in a way that in public, on social media, globally, to a large audience of people who are really into them, this is new and this is what I find really interesting.
0: Yeah, those are fascinating examples. I'd love to zoom up for a little bit. And one thing I would like to explore is, I guess, how you think this is playing out in the overall market. And I guess so. some of what I'm curious, we're seeing this wave of new brands that are absolutely resonating with people our age. Maybe it's the latest one or two or three generations. And I'm curious, maybe one way of thinking about why that's happening now is, previously in all of the grocery stores and in target there were no brands that spoke directly to this generation so we're just seeing a new wave of brands that is able to capture a whole new audience that's basically going on the shelf maybe is stealing a little bit of shelf space, but not potentially too much. It's almost just like there are now products coming for this latest generation. It's maybe one way of thinking about it. Another one would be that this is truly displacing older brands and it's going to cannibalize the industry. Have you spent much time thinking about that? Do you think that these brands are really cannibalizing some of the older brands or is it just they're taking a small footprint now, but you think they're going to continue to grow and grow and grow?
1: I think they're growing the market. I think these brands probably never get as big as some of the legacy brands do just because they're more specialized the audience for a 10 dollar can of smoked tuna is probably going to be smaller than the audience for a 45 cent can of tuna in spring water just because of the realities of economics i think they're growing the category and by the way it's interesting both of these brands started as direct consumer both of them aspire to be in retail fishwife has done some local retail Retail is a scaling game, basically, and direct to consumer allows them to start, iterate and find a community without any permission of any buyer at a retailer who takes a year and a half to make any decision without any permission, without having to pay a slotting fee, without having to do co-marketing with retailers. It's a really interesting thing that is, again, pretty new. Do they eventually replace and displace Legacy brands, yes, over time. If you look at where the growth is happening in the food and beverage and CPG industries, it is in smaller and medium-sized brands. But the big brands still have a lot of control over retail, where most stuff is still sold. To me, what's interesting, though, is that, and the pandemic has really accelerated, you hear this word a lot, accelerated the shift to e-commerce. And let's look at the food and beverage industry or grocery, for example. It is a trillion-dollar industry in the U.S., just in the US, a trillion dollars. And before the pandemic, it was single digit percentage e-commerce, not much money being spent online relative to retail. Retail was still the story. And all of a sudden, when COVID changed the rules of society, when all of a sudden it was awkward or maybe even irresponsible to go into a store if you could avoid it, that drove a lot of shopping online a lot of people tried online grocery for the first time and really started to rely on it before it was a convenience kind of a luxury my favorite was like oh i'll order my groceries online from the plane as i'm flying home and it's like wow what a kind of jerk are you you know great cool man do that but all of a sudden it became a necessity it became essential infrastructure and a lot of people who tried online grocery for the first time because the pandemic forced them to are sticking with it we find that in our research that most people who actually spend more money online for grocery prefer it they like it more than they like buying stuff in the store now what's interesting about that is a again trillion dollar market heading online but as money heads online it doesn't just go to the places it went offline if you were doing your grocery shopping at say kroger or albertson's or something like that When you do your grocery shopping online, it doesn't mean you're just gonna go to Kroger.com and spend all your money there. We see what's called a share shift often when a market goes digital. We saw it in media. The money and the attention in digital media has not gone to the websites of local newspapers, TV stations, and radio stations. It has gone to Google, Facebook, blogs, Twitter, all kinds of other, Netflix, YouTube. Attention and spending goes to a new place when it heads online. So my favorite, one of my favorite slides in the deck that I produce, the consumer trends deck is titled, what's a grocery store as money heads online. It's not just going to traditional grocery stores. It's going to places like meal kit services or meal delivery services or online native grocers like Thrive Market or Imperfect Foods or this new wave of 15 minute grocery delivery services, which kind of started in Europe. There's one called Gorillas that's opening in the U.S. There's ones called Fridge No More. There's obviously Instacart. By the way, Walmart, Target, they've captured a lot of that money because they've figured out how to be online and how to be digital. Obviously, Amazon has captured probably the largest single share of any of that spending and will continue as it builds out its grocery business. But there's so much more opportunity now to be a direct-to-consumer brand and if let's say for every 10 percent of the grocery market that goes online that is literally a hundred billion dollars that is open to e-commerce companies that did not have to exist in that physical world that was dominated by large retailers so sorry that was long-winded but there's just so much opportunity that exists now because a market is going digital that didn't exist before so you could scale a direct to consumer food business in a way that you could never do before you could grow a category in a way that you could never do before sure you're going to get a level of scale when you go into target and walmart that you weren't getting before as well but you don't have to at least you don't have to as quickly now and you can hopefully do it on your own terms. To me that was one of the more interesting things, you know, Harry's the razor company was in the process of being acquired by a legacy CPG company that owned Chic razors and the deal was ultimately blocked by the US government because when Harry's went into retail big retail, which by the way they were able to do on their own terms, they were able to do with merchandising that none of the other shaver brands did and they've all since copied but it was such a boon to their business. And it actually reflected in lower pricing in the market in a way that it was actually (laughs) an antitrust problem for them doing this deal. So there is still a lot of power to be a big retailer. And there's still a lot of pricing power that you can get once you get into big retail, but it's no longer an essential.
0: Yeah. So Harry's is a fascinating example, which you just alluded to and shared a little bit there of an incumbent brand really helping to change the market and upset pricing and upset positioning and upset all of the brands that are there. I think that's a fascinating one. Another brand I know that you've written quite a lot about that I'm also really interested in is Sweet Green. And I'm curious, one way of thinking about that is it's like some of these brands like Fishwife or Omsom that's just much, much, much bigger, much more at scale and just has progressed a little bit further. I guess, how do you think about Sweet Green in terms of where it fits into this market or this wave of new brands? And what do you find most interesting or novel or exciting about about what they're doing
1: there's so many interesting facets to sweetgreen and certainly the pandemic has hurt a lot of parts of their businesses but also is kind of open to some new routes too i first started being interested in sweetgreen about i think five years ago when it was launching in new york where i was living then and like all great brands to me it, it starts with a great product and specifically the quality of the food sweet green is a salad chain by the way if anyone's listening who's not familiar with it it's a salad chain that started i think actually 10 years ago right about now or maybe a little longer than that i don't know they just celebrated some sort of anniversary in washington dc and it's just a very high quality salad product like they make everything in each restaurant there's no national commissary where they make all the dressings or anything like that like they make Everything in each restaurant with a local supply chain, which has kind of made it trickier for them to grow than some other brands, but it has resulted in a product that's just much better than their competition. Specifically, I would say the dressings like their dressings are fresh and they're higher in acidity and lower in sugar than most salad dressings because they're fresh. So To me, that was always a differentiator. You were just getting a salad that just tasted so much better, so much fresher at Sweetgreen than you were getting anywhere else. But they also had really great branding. They had really great content. They were making these newspapers in their stores. Their store design was cool. There was a scene there. There was a line. It was a little obnoxious to stand in the line for 20 minutes to get your lunch, but it was also the best people watching of the day. So it worked. And they were able to Scale to a point in New York and DC, and now they're open in a bunch of cities in a really compelling and interesting way. But they also were taking really novel approaches to their business, too. They started something called the Outpost program, where basically a company could put a shelf in the corner of the Sweet Green office. And this was before they offered delivery to just anyone, and your coworkers could order Sweet Green to be delivered at lunchtime to the office, you know, there was a cutoff time and it was free delivery. And it basically meant that you didn't have to go wait in the line. But only Sweet Green was delivering to that shelf in the office. And it was just this brilliant co-branding thing. And Sweet Green is ostensibly healthy. So it it made companies kind of look good like, hey, we're looking out for your health. We're inviting this cool brand into our space. It's just a really interesting business model that no one else was doing. And Unfortunately, it got totally wrecked by the pandemic. They were at a point where they had, I think, over a thousand outposts or were getting near it and then just got completely vaporized by the fact that people stopped going into the office. But then they ramped up delivery and in-store pickup. And again, not like a tech company in the way that Microsoft is a tech company or Google or something like that, but they have been able to use technology in a compelling and interesting way to make even just like a really high quality ordering app and really high quality digital content. And they just did a rebrand with this agency called Collins, which again, just designed to feel fresh and interesting. And I think they just get the younger and more modern consumer in a way that pretty much few or no other fast casual restaurants do. I would say one that has continued to impress me is Chipotle They have also done digital very well, and it shows in their results. They've been able to, and obviously Starbucks too, but Chipotle has been able to continue to grow their digital business during the pandemic, which again, made everything really hard for a lot of restaurants, but the ones that really figured out digital, figured out how to be, I hate this term, but omni-channel have been the winners. And that's the lesson here is the ones that figured out how to use technology to the best of their abilities are the ones that are going to be stronger and more resilient no matter what happens. You know, we thought everything was reopening and every restaurant that had set up a little provisions corner has since shut those down. A lot of the restaurants that started doing online ordering have stopped offering takeout. Some of the more sit down type places that had kind of tried doing delivery and takeout have curbed that back. With Delta variant, like we don't know what's going to happen this fall and this winter. So the ones I think that figured out how to be nimble and how to be digital and really improvised during the pandemic, I think are the ones that are going to be the strongest going forward, even as things get weird in ways that we didn't anticipate before.
0: Yeah, you made so many great points there, but I think one that I've definitely felt is food brands that have just an exceptionally good app or an exceptionally good ordering experience, whether that's in the app or on the web, but Sweet Green is amazing. Chipotle is great. Another one I've been really impressed by recently is Shake Shack. And initially, I think I was, if you were to ask me a couple of years ago, I would have thought, you know, I think that brand, that concept is maybe ultimately limited. Now I'm like, they're doing just incredibly well. You know, they have chicken now, they have burgers, they've just expanded. It's all super fresh. It's digitally enabled and it's a great experience that way. Anyways, it's just interesting to think about too, how quickly they've been able to kind of make that pivot and turn into a great digitally-enabled experience.
1: It's funny because it's crucial for getting repeat business and for just making it really easy for people, reducing friction to ordering. The other interesting thing about digital orders is it can be much more profitable for the restaurant. Chipotle talks about this a lot on their quarterly earnings calls because if you think about a Chipotle restaurant, there's that line that you kind of wait in at lunchtime and then a person is making your food while you're standing there waiting for them. They have a second line in the back, which I think they call their digital make line. There's no waiting. They just make it as quickly as possible. The station is set up so they can do it while standing in one place. And as a result, the throughput for that line is much higher. They can do a lot more quickly. They're not sitting there waiting for you to say, which beans do you want? How much sour cream? They just, boom. It's like watching a really fast drummer do their thing. you know. And so they can have a higher margin on that. They can also do things that would slow down the line that doesn't slow down the digital line. So one of the most interesting things is now we're seeing in-app exclusives. Chipotle has launched the quesadilla as a menu item that you can only order in the app because they only will make it on that back line. And not only can e-commerce positively impact the profitability or at least the unit economics of a burrito bowl, but they can also open new opportunities for new products that didn't really make sense in the the theater of the fast, casual kind of assembly line, but make a lot more sense in the back. They can also have different cooks back there who may not want to be customer service or customer facing. There's a ton of opportunities there that digital enables.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Now I want to go and Google what that digital make line actually looks like. (laughs) Looks like a drum kit, except it's salsas and... It's circular, which at least that's what I'm imagining. (laughs) Should be able to spin around. That would be cool. I love it. So to wrap up this section because we're going to go on and talk about this consumer trends report in the latest version you put out in just a sec. But to wrap up this section, I'd love to just go super tactical now. And I guess the question I would ask is, so you've studied a bunch of brands. You've obviously met some of the people running them, companies like Fishwife, which you alluded to. I'm curious if you had someone that came to you, maybe it's a solo founder, maybe it's two people like the Fishwife founders and said, hey, we really want to launch a direct-to-consumer brand or a food brand. We want to do kind of best-in-class execution. Where should we start? Or what should we get right? You know, If someone came to you and just asked for a little bit of direction on where they should be paying attention, and if you were to coach them, what advice would you give to that founder?
1: I would say start really small. Figure out what is your launch hero product going to be that is truly different, that is special, different, better, that really you on the map because people trust a new brand will invest money i don't mean as like a shareholder but will invest money purchasing and will invest social capital kind of vouching for this new brand in a way that they never did before so if you can kind of tickle people with something that's really interesting and unique that's the start and then build a world from there figure out what your trajectory is in terms of growing your product count In distribution but also like what is the atmosphere that you're trying to create a great brand that does this really well is called entire world it's an apparel brand founded by a guy named scott sternberg who used to run a fashion company called band of outsiders and you could see entire world is kind of a american apparel for the 21st century without the creepiness but he's done such a fantastic job at just building this world having a really fun e-commerce experience Really, kind of weird but quirky advertising and content. And yeah, they're sweatpants and shirts and pants and dresses. And they're pretty simple, but you really want to go to bat for them because they've done something really interesting. They entertain you, they make you feel like you're part of something bigger and special. And I think that's really. I don't know. Maybe I'm too romantic about this. Every day and every week, I'm introduced to these like super successful brands that make tens, hundreds of millions of dollars a year selling stuff that just doesn't seem that interesting to me. Clearly, they found a market niche that was unserved or underserved. But to me, the most interesting ones are the ones who do it in a really creative and organic way and and take advantage of the media that is available to them, whether that's just really beautiful packaging design or fun videos, or having a conversation with your audience about any topic. Certainly we saw last summer during some of the civil rights stuff that companies were starting to talk about capital R real, real stuff in a way that they never had to before consumers want that consumers want to support brands that stand for more than just making money. They want to stand for brands that believe in the same things they do. We're going to see a lot of this over the next decade with sustainability and climate. We're going to see a lot of it with race and civil rights. We're going to see a lot more of it with all kinds of things that come up, voting rights. I'm sure we're going to have reproductive rights. Brands are going to have to take a stand on this sort of stuff. And it wasn't really like that a decade or two ago, but it's just part of reality now. So also be prepared to do some of that stuff in a way that maybe is uncomfortable, but meaningful to your audience.
0: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I mean, just hearing you rattle off that list, it almost feels like global warming in the environment slash sustainability is like the easy, comfortable topic to talk about now that used to be the popular topic. And what people are looking for is maybe more engagement on the super uncomfortable (laughs) topics.
1: And going back to your question about authenticity, like you also have to do this stuff in a way that's not phony because people will see through it and you will get in trouble for that these days.
0: So I want to change now and talk a little bit about the Consumer Trends Report. And just to start, so I know this is available for free to download. For anyone listening, where can they go to get this?
1: Newconsumer.com slash trends. Or go to newconsumer.com and click trends. But yeah, newconsumer.com slash trends will always be the latest trends report. And for the foreseeable future, they'll all be free. I mean, there might be one that's not at some point, but these are, all you have to do is sign up for a free account and you can download the PDF or flip through the slides right on the site.
0: And how did this come about? And I guess, can you share a little bit of the context of the partnership with Coefficient Capital? Obviously they're in this space, they seem interested, but I'd love to know a little bit more about how this came about in the first place, that partnership.
1: I love slideshows. I love presenting. I love giving talks with slides in back of me. It's always just something that's felt really fun and comfortable for me. And I would say the king, but the queen of this is Mary Meeker. She was a very famous internet stock analyst during the dot com boom. More recently, she's a venture capitalist. And she has a report called Internet Trends, which I don't know if anyone will ever beat that. It's, I think it's like 300 slides. And it's basically like everything from the super macro to the super micro. And I love it. It's awesome. I had a chance to kind of see it up close when I was running Recode and she was presenting it at our conference. And I'd always just had a, a huge intellectual crush on the internet trends report and on Mary Meeker. So this was kind of my nowhere near as good as Mary Meeker, but hopefully someday attempt to make a presentation that I hope is meaningful and also useful to people who are not looking so much at the internet trends, but at the trends in consumer food and beverage, consumer package goods, etc. And it's something I'd wanted to do forever. And one of these perfect things happened where I had a call with some of the folks at Coefficient Capital, which is an early stage VC firm in New York. And they said, hey, we want to do a consumer trends deck. And I was like, I want to do a consumer trends deck. Let's do it. So it's a really great partnership because I would say we do things in a way that's super complementary. I'm a journalist, I'm a researcher, I'm an analyst, I'm a designer, I make all the charts and all the slides. And I'm very comfortable with data in a way that I think actually a lot of my peers are not. I love telling stories through charts. To me, it's just a really fascinating medium. You can see it. You turn business into art in a way that you can't do with words. They're also super visceral,
0: I feel like, you know, depending on the chart.
1: Yes, <laughs> like, exactly. Right and they can be very dramatic as well. And the coefficient folks obviously have a much deeper look at companies than I do because they are shown financial information and... Told stories that I'm not. They also have, you know, background in investing. And very helpfully, their senior associate, a woman named Natalie Borowski, is a former McKinsey consultant who knows how to run surveys. And therefore, we've been able to run now twice this proprietary consumer trend survey of over 3,000 consumers, asking them the questions we want to ask them, not relying on third party surveys and being able to really understand the topics that we want to go deep on. And so that's why it's been a really great partnership to me because I get to leverage their skills that I don't have and they get to leverage me in a way that would be impossible to do on their own. So it's a perfect collaboration in that sense. We started last December with the first Consumer Trends Report. COVID was a really fascinating thing that happened to the world and especially in commerce and across the consumer landscape because, again, there were these arbitrary rules that not arbitrary. There were societal rules that were set up to prevent people from getting sick, basically social distancing, work from home, shop online, retail stores. A lot of them were closed for a long time. Gyms were closed, bars and restaurants were closed, and it forced consumers to adopt new habits and it forced businesses to adopt new ways of selling and marketing. So our first report, which was over a hundred slides, Was trying to figure out which of these habits are actually going to stick. You know, it was one thing. Yeah. Everybody made sourdough bread and bought puzzles last April, but then they stopped. But what are the changes that are going to be more structural and longer lasting and more meaningful? And we zoomed in on a few markets, including online grocery beauty digital fitness and home exercise and a few others. And we ran the survey and we did a combination of kind of aggregating the best possible data that was from either government sources or from other companies. Like OpenTable has been publishing their reservations throughput for the last year and a half. The TSA has been publishing checkpoint data for the last year and a half. The MTA in New York has been publishing subway ridership. There's a company called Castle that makes, Castle with a K, that makes the key card reader in your office building that's been publishing the data from their key card readers to show how many people were coming in the office. So there's just this fascinating data that's been out there that we aggregated and then also combined that with our proprietary survey data. So we were able to find out not only how people were adopting these new technologies or these new consumer habits, but also whether they liked them or not, whether they wanted to continue with them. So this most recent report was supposed to be about this great reopening. We were thinking, okay, the vaccines are up, the virus is down, life is going to be booming for the next several months. Well, of course, the Delta variant has really put a damper on that as well. So we called it the partial reopening special and essentially taking a look at, okay, last December we said these things were really working, online grocery, big thing digital fitness. It's been more than six months now. What's sticking? Is this actually the future or not? And so we were able to repoll a huge consumer audience, see what people were still excited about, what they were still doing differently. And we also work with this company called Earnest Research, which tracks consumer spending with credit and debit cards. We were able to see that things like online grocery, which really shot up during the early pandemic, have actually sustained that growth really interestingly. And actually People now prefer online grocery more than they did last November. 45% of the people we polled last November who said they had switched to online grocery preferred it then. Now, 61% of people prefer it then. If we look at a field like fitness, 82% have switched more to exercising at home. Sorry, 82% of millennials, 72% of all consumers. Three quarters of the millennials say they prefer it two thirds of all consumers say they prefer it. So this is the kind of thing where it's like, okay, we had this world of gyms, of equinoxes, of fitness centers. Now all of a sudden people are forced to work out at home, use the Nike training app, buy a Peloton or a tonal gym or whatever it is. And here we are now a year and a half later, and they still actually prefer it in really large numbers. So some of these changes that happened during the pandemic are not fads, but they seem to be not necessarily permanent because what is ever permanent, but long lasting shifts. And again, to go back to that online grocery share shift, anytime money moves from one place to another, it's up for grabs. So there is a massive opportunity in these markets for new players to capture that growth. And we love having data that confirms our assumptions and not just this idea. So those are some of the takeaways from the report. We also looked at a couple other topics Fortunately, the pandemic has really exacerbated the inequality in the US, and we have some really interesting research on how people in different income brackets feel about their financial well-being, about saving money. We asked everybody if they believe in the American dream. 68% of people in America believe in the American dream, but it's quite different depending on your situation. Younger people, Gen Z, only 56% of Gen Z believe in the American dream. of the silent generation does, 72% of people who are fully vaccinated for COVID believe in the American dream, but only 60% of people who are not fully vaccinated. So we got to see some interesting shifts there. And then also this idea we were tracing about the roaring 20s. And I think this was more apparent perhaps before the Delta variant, but there was this belief that maybe this next decade was going to be off the charts in terms of people just really celebrating life, traveling a lot drinking, partying, living kind of, or more wildlife, that definitely seems like it's kind of not necessarily going to happen, at least not right away. And we were able to kind of tell that story through data, both from partners and also from our survey. And really the one thing that people said they were going to do more than anything else is still spend time outdoors. So great for campgrounds and rental car companies, not so great for music venues. Oh, well, we'll see. I don't know. Who knows? It looks like Lollapalooza was not a super spreader event after all. So, although we'll see. I don't know if it's been long enough. but
0: <laughs> Maybe still some hope for large concerts.
1: Yeah. Roaring 20 is still TBD, I would say. Yeah,
0: okay. I like it. There's so many fascinating insights in that report. So I definitely encourage people to download it and read it. One thing I wanted to ask you is, You talked about that last time you surveyed people, you got one reading of how much they like that behavior, how much they like this new way of doing things, and now that's gone up. I'm curious, do you read into that at all? And what is the insight there? Is it just that obviously change is uncomfortable and then people get more used to it? Is it that they changed and these things also got better? I guess any thoughts on why people have gotten so much more satisfied over time? Both of those.
1: I mean, certainly the idea of something that is novel and then becomes an ingrained habit or something you rely on over a longer period of time, hopefully you're going to like it more than when you first started. I could see people feeling the other way around too about certain things as well, but these are for-profit businesses, you know, Amazon, Instacart, Walmart, theoretically, they should be investing huge sums into improving the customer experience. And in many cases, they have. It's a lot more convenient and robust of an experience than it was a year ago. Maybe not like what you would really have dreamed it would be, but you can order groceries online and have a reliable delivery window or pickup window, which was not possible during the peak lockdown. So the products and services have gotten better. They're starting to differentiate more. Again, there's this new crop of these 15-minute delivery companies which is pretty interesting we're going to just see so many more new ideas pop up as these behaviors become more commonplace. I'm not sold on the idea that retail is dead. I think there's so many opportunities for retailers to build great experiences, great community. I've joked before but maybe it's less of a joke than the truth like more grocery stores will look like Italy. There will be a restaurant and a bar and Still really great produce and meats and cheeses and that sort of stuff, but it will feel different. You won't just be combing these dead aisles of frozen stuff and boxes of cereal because a lot of that will be handled for you, but you might still want to go there to explore new things, to discover new products. Discovery is something that's really hard to do online, really hard to do in e-commerce. A lot of companies like Amazon and Instacart see advertising as the answer to discovery. That will benefit the companies that have budgets for advertising. It will not benefit necessarily the most interesting or compelling products. So retail is still a great venue for discovery and community in a way that digital e-commerce is harder to do, but we'll see.
0: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation and we've talked about, it's been amazing. (laughs) We've covered so much ground. We've talked about supply and demand, how people are spending their time and their money, what modern brands are getting right, as well as all these insights you have in your report. So thank you so much for the time. This has been a great conversation. For anyone listening that wants to subscribe, go to New Consumer, but do you have a pitch you want to share about why people would find it interesting and where they can go to subscribe?
1: Certainly. If you're interested in what's next, if you are an entrepreneur or an investor or work in the creative field or anything that touches the consumer and want to know, A, what people want and what they're doing, and B, what innovative and interesting companies are doing and how they're doing it and why they're doing it, that's the whole point of everything I do. And it's just me. It's led by my personal curiosity. I'm starting to work a little more with more writers, but I try to zoom in and zoom out and do things in a way that you just would never get from a fast company or business week or something like that. So check it out, newconsumer.com. Please download the trends deck. If you find it useful, if you want to be part of what I'm building join as a member, you're supporting indie publishing in a way that you would never be doing with a bigger publication or a bigger brand. And it's great to meet. I do quarterly office hours where we can have a quick chat and you can tell me what you're up to and get my advice on things. I hope to launch events once events are cool to do again. I'm still not perfectly comfortable going to in-person events myself, but hopefully we'll be eventually again. And I plan to be doing this for a very long time. It's been about two and a half years now. I love it. It's the best thing I've ever done. and join me, newconsumer.com.
0: And just to add, I would add a huge plus one to that. You know, someone that's subscribed for two years now, it's been an incredible publication. And even that earlier in the conversation, you touched on Sweet Greens Outpost piece. That was one piece that I didn't see that covered anywhere else. Super interesting from a business strategy perspective. So I think articles like that for me have been just amazing. So huge fan of what you're doing. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. For links to everything Dan and I discussed, as well as our favorite takeaways from the episode, visit outlieracademy.com slash 40. You can also jump to the next episode to go behind the scenes and learn more about the habits, influences, and life lessons that have shaped Dan in the short bonus episode that follows this one. To dive deeper, visit outlieracademy.com where you can find more conversations with incredible guests like Scott Belsky, Kevin Kelly, Erlang Kage, as well as the founders of companies like Big Ass Fans, Primal Kitchen, Rally, and Titan. You can also sign up for our free weekly newsletter, Outlier Debrief, where every week on Friday we share a few highlights from the latest episode, along with a few of our favorite articles, headlines, and moments from that week. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you here next week on Outlier Academy.